Welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab. This is our issue number seven. The Alumni Audio Lab is the podcast of the OAD, the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. I am Doris Bauer and in this podcast I talk with alumni who all studied or researched in Austria within different scholarship programs of the OAD and now they work in many different disciplines and they were very successful there. And we talk about the life, the research, the background. And I'm very happy to introduce my guest today, Sarah de Jong. It was a little bit difficult to find a date because she lives in the UK now and she's just here for a few days. Sarah de Jong is from the Netherlands and she holds a PhD in polit politics from the University of Nottingham with the title Performing Global Citizenship, Women NGO Workers' Negotiations of Complicities in the Work Practices, which was also published as book this year. This title contains a good overview on your uh, research interests in general, because there is citizenship, there are women, there are NGOs, and if there would be migration, diversity and development as well, I think mm -hmm. it would be all of it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Sarah, I'm very happy that you're here today. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start right away. Before mm -hmm. we talk about your research, I would like to hear more about you as a person. You studied your studies at the University of Maastricht with a bachelor degree in humanities. And what was that about? And why did you choose this way? Hmm. Uh, good question. Yeah. So after my secondary school, I actually took a gap year, like many people do nowadays. And I went to England and Spain. And, you know, that extra year before going to university, I suppose, changed me in some way, made me more confident with my English. And the program that was offered at the University of Maastricht was offered in English. It was based on the American Liberal Arts College, which meant that it was very interdisciplinary, that it was a kind of ambitious program. It was new at the time, so we had to apply for the program to get in. And I was very keen to study. I was very widely, broadly interested. So I was internationally focused, and that's, I guess, what brought me to Maastricht. Okay, and, and what included humanities as mm. a whole? I mostly, myself, like in the end, I would say I specialize mostly in, in social theory, cultural theory. But as a background, I got a lot of, you know, history as well, philosophy. So I guess it prepared me to read complex text, to translate, you know, abstract concepts to something that was more concrete. Yeah. Yes, I think you get it pretty well because I tried to read some of your articles and they are already now complex theories and texts, <laughs> but it's very interesting. And then you follow the master in critical theory and politics That's at right, the yeah. University of Nottingham. Where does your interest in politics especially came from? Mm -hmm. So I think on the one hand, I think even as a child, I would probably have called myself a feminist. I was always quite interested in women's rights. I was interested in watching documentaries. I, I like to go to the cinema a lot. So I was interested in watching documentaries about different political and social issues. But in Maastricht, you know, I'd, maybe I was a bit politically active. I was politically active in a student party that was there, but I was not so, at the time, I was not so concerned with what was happening in the broader world. But um, I wanted to study critical theory in the UK. And then I saw that there was a possibility to combine critical theory and politics. And last minute, I had actually registered for critical theory only. Last minute, I changed to critical theory and politics. 
And in practice, that meant that I spent half of my time in the modern languages department where they taught critical theory and half of my time I could choose politics courses in the politics department. Does your parents have somehow a background in politics or somewhere? Where, where do you get the information or the movies and anything? No, I mean, my parents are, I mean, they're both more trained as psychologists, so they, they, <laughs> they study the mind and they don't study the political. I don't, I also don't think, you know, of course, with the upcoming elections, I wouldn't say I'm not interested in party politics, but I mean, that's <laughs> not my initial interest. So my, my interest is more really in politics and the political more broadly. And I think as a child, you don't really realize, or even as a young student, you don't always realize that that <laughs> is what politics could also be. So yeah, yeah I came to Nottingham and... I continued the critical theory strand and I found it really interesting, very philosophical. But then at the same time, maybe it also helped that Nottingham as a city confronted me with certain things like um, even though the UK is a very prosperous country, uh, the gap between those who are rich and poor is much larger than, than in continental Europe, than in Austria, than in the Netherlands. So Nottingham is a city where there's a large, uh, more like yeah, working class population or I could just see things like lots of young women who already had children, you know, 18, 19 years old. So, you know, I was just confronted with some inequalities, people who are young who didn't have good teeth um, because they couldn't afford a dentist. So I guess it was some kind of eye-opening thing already. Is this what you mean when you say politics is not party politics, but the broader thing, the wider thing? Yes, is exactly. This? So I think politics is about you know, being interested in making the world a better place, you know. And of course, people do that in different ways. Yeah. Or maybe they only see certain things that they don't like and they only talk about it in the pub and they don't do anything about it. But I guess that is what I would see as the political. So that's why it is still quite close, perhaps, to sociologists, you know, who are interested in how society works which is also something I find really interesting, but it's more the political component than of that society. It's very interesting, and I think everyone should hear that because right now it's just party politics mm. because elections are coming up in Austria. It's the beginning of October for our listeners. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and why not Nottingham? Why the UK? Mm. Was there no possibility to study it in the Netherlands or was it just more complex or otherwise? Complex. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm also, so I started studying my bachelor degree in 2002. At the time, of course, there was already a Bologna process with bachelor and master programs being developed in Europe. But the Netherlands was rather ahead with that program. After finishing my bachelor, it wasn't so easy to find master programs, you know, in there was not a wide variety, there was not such a... There were not that many interesting programs yet, and of course I had studied in English always, so I was quite interested in continuing my studies in English and critical theory, I guess. I mean, that's also something quite special. I don't think I could have studied that elsewhere. Uh, so I was excited, I suppose, by that. I'd never been to Nottingham before. Maybe people know it's the city of Robin Hood. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Nottingham Forest. <laughs> that's right, Nottingham Forest. There is really a Nottingham Forest. The football club is also called Nottingham Forest. Yeah. And then... Let's go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, a few years, in October 2012, you came to, to Vienna, to Austria, with right, yeah. Ernst Mach grant to conduct research within a project about development and migration. Mm -hmm. um, I will ask you about that research in a second, but why did you choose Austria and Vienna? Had mm. you, why? <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, that is partly actually also... So, I'm, yeah, I, I, so I stayed in Nottingham because I had the opportunity to do a PhD there after one year of studying. 
Um, yeah, and, sorry, we skipped the PhD. No, 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 no that's <laughs> no, fine. No, we'll talk about it later um, in uh, more detail. And then I moved to the Netherlands. So I made a choice and I applied for the Ensmach uh, scholarship when I was based in the Netherlands. At the time, I didn't have an... I had a job that was partly research-based, but it was not in an academic institution. And I was quite keen to go back to academia to really do full-time research. Of course, it was also some years after finishing my PhD because I finished in 2010. So I had some new ideas that I wanted to develop. And as my PhD was something related to development studies, I had been interested in Vienna and development studies because they knew I knew that they were really an institution that was not just thinking about how do we do development? How do we help the people in Africa? But more thinking about asking questions about development. So who is doing it? Why are we doing it? What is development? And that was something I found interesting. And on a personal note, I mean, my partner at the time uh, was Austrian. So he didn't come with me. I, I mean, we didn't go there together. He actually stayed in the Netherlands. But of course, through him, I guess I knew Vienna as a city and I had more awareness of what was on offer here. Yeah. Can you... No, I, maybe you don't know that because when I hear development studies in the UK or in Austria, Austria is very small and mm. we just got only one institution for development studies in whole Austria and in UK it's much broader, much bigger. Can you compare these? Yeah, so I mean, it is true that in the UK it's much larger and also, of course, the there's the UK has such a strong imperial history and colonialism and development aid has always been very strongly connected. So, and also, yeah, the, the, the scientific knowledge production in relation to colonialism is very strongly connected with this knowledge production in relation to international development. So it is indeed at a much bigger scale. Austria also doesn't give a lot of development aid compared to countries say like loud, the UK. Say it clear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, But at the same time, I mean, when I came to Vienna, I mean, I think really it is a very active department, a department that attracted a lot of critical, interested, politicized students, um, and that makes it such an interesting place. And I think, uh, yes, Austria is a small country, but when you do, when you are doing international development studies, development studies, it immediately means that you need to look outward, right? And that you're not just focused on Austria, so... I think that's what I found there. And maybe the other special thing about the institution is that there are many people there who are interested in migration, including the head of the department, which is not something that is always the case. So it, it's similarly at my current institution that migration and development are taught together. Um, but that's certainly something that I found attractive. Yeah. Okay, then let's talk now about the research you, you conducted about development and migration, the missing link. What yeah, was the context right. about? Yeah, so I have to say something, I suppose, about my PhD to... Uh, to describe why I came to this other project. So my PhD, I think when people ask me in short what I'm interested in, I sometimes say something like the politics of NGOs or the politics of civil society. And sometimes I also say like, I'm interested in people trying to do good um, and then how difficult it is to do good, what dilemmas come up, what contradictions come up. And so the PhD was on women who were trying to do good in two different ways. I interviewed women who were working in Western countries with and for migrant women. And I was also interviewing women who were working in the Global South or for the Global South, women in the Global South. And my logic was always that these people had something in common because they wanted to good, do good, but also they were on the helping side, they were on the privileged side. And of course, it's difficult if on the one hand, maybe your goal is to establish a more equal relationship to make sure the other person comes maybe one day also to your position. And at the same time, by being in the on the side of helping, there's an inequality already. 
And what was, I guess, special about that PhD project was that I looked at organizations, you know, yeah, international big development organizations together with people who worked in a domestic context, in a national context with migrant women. So that me would mean very practically, you know, in Austria, for example, that you would look at an organization like the Caritas and you would look at an organization, yeah, like a Südwind or something mm -hmm. like a, a global development organization. And in the literature, This is actually not so common. So you have either people who work in the national setting or you have people who work on the in, on the international organization. And I guess the missing link was really about um, all that knowledge that we have accumulated about non-governmental organizations in the global south and what challenges they face, what is problematic in terms of do they represent the poor or not? Um, do they help the poor? Are they ineffective Do the poor have any voice in that, etc.? These kind of questions. Why are these questions not necessarily asked or these lessons that we have learned in relation to development? Why are they not asked the moment we talk about helping, supporting migrants? So that that was you know that was really like the missing link. Like why when we struggle with the same issue of trying to help others and of global power relations between people from the global north and people from the global south. This is not only happening in African or Asian countries. This is also happening in Austria because the global south and the global north also encounters each other here. Yeah. Did you find some solutions? Solutions how to bridge the gap, or was that not part of your work? Was it just? A uh, it's a difficult question. Whether it's also some time ago. Um, I don't know if I. I mean, I guess you know it is partly. As an academic, I guess you are trying to bring people in conversation with each other. I think that is partly successful. And of course, I'm also not the only one who has done work on this. And I think now that I think I have kind of convinced people at least that these are not two separate issues, but these are two common issues. I think then the conversation needs to start, of course, about it. And I can only do a tiny thing in that. Yeah. yeah no, I think these are good, uh, very, very important findings. And then you did the next research project, which was also about communication. It was about employing the cultural broker in the governance of migration and integration. It did also case studies in Austria, UK and the Netherlands. First, what are cultural... Cult <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> cultural brokers. <laughs> yeah, good question. Okay, so the... Marie Curie project, because it was sponsored by the European Union, really came out of the project that was sponsored and that was financed by the EAD. And of course, it still also came out of my thinking of the PhD project, which was about women helping women. And the fact that on the one hand, they identified with each other, but they were also in very different settings. Those on the one hand who were privileged, those on the other hand who were marginalized. And so I was interested again in this relationship, right? So I looked at migrant organizations or organizations that were supporting and advocating for migrants. And I was interested in whether they, on the one hand, identified the workers who themselves had a similar background or whether they disidentified with this group. Brokers are mediators, intermediaries. And cultural brokers, of course, would be those who are supposed to mediate or yeah, negotiate between or translate between different cultures. Now, of course, you know, cultures are not like a box or something that you can just translate. And that is, and of course, cultures are fluid, but yeah, but these are brokers. And what's interesting about brokers is that they should communicate in both directions. So they're kind of bridge builders, really. Yeah. And whether it's brokers in institutional context or in, in initiatives or yeah, in so this way? I looked at organizations that were advocating for and supporting asylum seekers, refugees or other migrants in those three countries that you mentioned. 
so I looked mostly at caseworkers, frontline staff, or in German, berater, beraterinne. And I asked them basically, do you identify with your client group? And so if they said yes, I started interviewing them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so most of the people were people who themselves had once been refugees. They had come as refugees to Austria, the Netherlands, and the UK. And they had very different work experience, but they found themselves in the end a job in organizations like Caritas, Diakonie, Volkshilfe, or in the UK, Refugee Action, Refugee Council, Migrant Help. Uh, these are large non-governmental organizations that are not migrant self-organizations. These are organizations that used to be rather, let's say, white organizations. They were set up by the majority society to support migrants. And then, of course, they became more and more diverse. They started attracting people who could speak different languages, who had different experience. Yeah, And this was before about yeah. two years before the refugee crisis i know <laughs> and it's very interesting because i think a lot of people in austria think these cultural brokers just came with the refugees because they, they needed them and are there differences between the three countries and the role of the cultural brokers or the how they see themselves mm, can i first still say something about sure. whether they're new or not new sure yeah. please <laughs> um, Go on. because the whole so what i in the end did in the project or one of the things i did in the project was to actually say that diversity and dealing with diversity is something that is very old and not new at all how old I mean, certainly going back, for example, to colonial empires. And so what I did was that I read, even though I'm not trained as a historian, I read a lot of case studies about people who were mediators, translators, interpreters in colonial empires and in settler societies. So, for example, you know, when the Portuguese went to Brazil to conquer Brazil, I mean, of course, as a colonizing force, they would just also be terrified. You know, they would come to the coast, they would have their boat on the shore, they couldn't understand the people, you know, and they they would, for example, sometimes leave people behind, their own prisoners, and pick them up after a year because then they would have learned a language or sometimes they would kidnap people from indigenous communities, take them with them to Brazil, uh, to Portugal, teach them Portuguese and bring them back the next year. And this is not just Brazil and Portugal, but everywhere, like Pocahontas is uh, from the Disney film, the also yeah, a famous person or... Malinche, the mistress and interpreter of the Spanish general Cortes when he came to Mexico. So I looked at, I read a lot of, let's say, life stories where people had gone into the archives to try and cobble together the stories of those people who were interpreters, uh, mediators. And what is very clear is that they are very much in demand. Everybody needs them. And at the same time, neither side really trusts them because, of course, when colonizers and indigenous people meet each other, that is not always an easy uh, relationship. They have very different interests and very different powers. So often they kind of die on their own and, and nobody nobody wants to have anything to do with them anymore. So I was interested in reading the stories and seeing uh, the mechanisms of the stories and the difficult position of that position, difficult um, characteristics of that position, and then to think about what it meant for people nowadays to be made into those bridges or mediators. Because on the one hand, you can be very powerful and you can do a lot of good, but at the same time, you can also be caught between two different interests. So it can be that the Austrian state would say, this is how integration works. And then you are, might be expected to tell your people, your community, how they should integrate themselves. And that puts you, of course, in a, in a difficult position in relation to your own community who might feel that you're not on their side, not supporting them. 
So that, that was really what I tried to do historically, to say all those things, diversity, diversity management, those kind of organizations, this is not a new question. <laughs> and now, that, yeah, do you want me to still answer your other question? or do you <laughs> No, I think it, it was already a little bit explained because like the UK and also I think the Netherlands have their colonial past. Mm -hmm. And I've read an article from you about the differences between, I think it was between diversity management or diversity research and migration management and mm. research. What is, what is this about? Because it sounds like it should be connected very close. Yeah, no, so it is also the convergence. So that yeah. means the overlaps between yeah. them. But again, this is something that people don't always look at together. So migration management is a bit a new way to think about how to deal with migration. So policymakers, big international organizations like the... International Organization of Migration, they now say that migration is something that we should manage. That means it's something that we cannot wish away anymore. It will just be there. We have to accept it. But we have to steer it in most productive directions. So we have to distinguish between, let's say, those who are useful migrants and those who are less useful migrants. And if there's anything not working about it, we need to manage it better. Now, On the one hand, you can say this is an improvement with the past, because uh, in the past it might rather be that states would just say we don't want migration. But at the same time, this notion that it needs to be managed and that it needs to be steered in certain directions and that there's an idea that it needs to be productive also means, of course, that certain migrants fall out of these productive categories and others are in. So this is migration management, diversity management has a very similar logic, and that's what I was trying to do in the paper in the article, to say that diversity management has gone through a similar development where initially when people, for example, would speak two different languages, it would be seen as a disadvantage. You know, A child who would speak Turkish and German would be seen as somebody who would be at risk of not doing well in school because it would be a kind of distraction that this child would also speak Turkish. Or not just in relation to migration, but also, um, you know, women... It was just difficult to have women in your in the business because they might get pregnant and then you lose them for a while. And then there's a shift that starts in the 90s in the US where they think, oh, but this difference, this otherness can also be something that's very useful for businesses. The fact that somebody speaks Turkish might also attract new clients. The fact that somebody is a woman might also make that she has a different perspective on how to go forward with the business. And so all of a sudden, this difference, this otherness, this distinction from the white male middle class person was seen as something that could be beneficial for and productive, could make profit. And so there's a similar logic behind those two notions that, yes, on the one hand, we see an appreciation of difference, but we also have a sense of it needs to be manageable and it needs to be something that brings financial benefits. And so I was trying to bring those two literatures together, which, as you say, maybe... Maybe it's often like that, that academics do something which, you know, for people who are not in the field, you know, seems like, okay, of course, yeah, sure. it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I know. But the academic world is not always working like that, right? It's often that people work on one issue in, in their little box and other people work in another box and they don't necessarily talk to each other. They work on different fields. How is that in your research? Are you connected with like researchers from other disciplines or do you see your research itself as interdisciplinary? So I only have a PhD in politics. In a way, I never studied politics, yeah, okay. as you just yeah, yeah, sure. said, right? So I think I automatically draw from different disciplines and I try to be interdisciplinary perhaps in that regard. The International Development Department in Vienna calls itself transdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. 
and we have people from different disciplines there. So that helped, I think, also to develop that notion. So you start more from an idea that there's a problem or an issue that you're interested in. And you try to, let's say, yeah, you, you try to think about it and you don't just stay in your discipline, of course. And I remember also when I did my PhD, people were, yeah, I was friends with lots of people in the sociology department and they would ask me like, why are you not with us? <laughs> I think that when you look at the job market, for example, it's not always so easy to move between disciplines. So you become also a bit more like your discipline just by staying longer in the discipline. And when I did my PhD, we had like 11 or 12 male professors, but we didn't have any female professor. And in sociology, in contrast, you had a lot of female professors. And I think I also a little bit decided there that if I could, I would try to stay in politics because I thought it was very bad that at least in some countries, politics is still more a masculine discipline and sociology is seen as a more feminine discipline. Yeah, that's why I want to have a place, let's say, in the discipline of politics as well. Yeah, I think I've read in your fields of research, gender and women's issues. What mm. is the difference? Is there a difference? And how would you define the one and the other? I think at the mo I don't know if you saw what I'm researching at the moment. I mean, at the moment I look much yeah, more look masculinity. Af Afghanistan and Iraq is, yeah, we will talk about it in a, in a minute. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> but the difference, of course, I mean, yeah, gender, of, of course, alerts us, right, to that male and female roles are something that are socialized. We could also, I mean, we talk about doing gender, so it's, or performing gender, so it's something that is not fixed to our bodies, but is something that is that can be changing, that we have to reinforce every time. We might also have more genders than just two. I mean, we do have more genders than just two. I think I put gender and women's issues on the book because some of the women that I interviewed, and I only interviewed people who identified as women, but some of the women that I interviewed were really only working for migrant women, whereas other people were more interested in, for example, gender and development. So how can we do development in a way that we're conscious of how it is affecting people who have different genders yeah so i wanted to make it inclusive of different people who i had interviewed you mentioned in your example before uh, language as an issue and i have a question not about that but about language in your research mm. because in austria we got an ongoing debate on gendering language mm. because in german you can gender i think in yes. english it's more gender neutral That's right. um, yeah. which role plays language in your research especially in the research on gender and women issues mm, good question because oh. i mean i think the first when you say language the first thing i think about is rather that it plays a role in relation to my research on migration because I interview people in different languages, right? And I also don't speak all of those fluently. Yeah, so. Sure. so you have your uh, language broker? <laughs> That's, yeah, no, I mean, I am myself doing the different... I don't use interpreters, or I've just used it once, I think. But for example, in Austria, that, yeah, I mean, that that became very important because when I started doing interviews in Austria, I'd only just arrived in Austria and I spoke German already, but... When I do the interviews, you can hear me say on the tape all the time, like, I'm really sorry about my German. I really do understand you. But, you know, tell me if there's something that I pronounce in an awkward way or something. And because I was interviewing people who themselves often didn't speak German as their first language, it became this amazing icebreaker where they then started telling me, like, so welcome in Austria. <laughs> you know, your German is great. It sounds really, really sweet. And it became very useful because sometimes they would identify with me. So they would say like, 
do you also think that the Austrians are so cold and like they have a face from glass? Is that like that in the Netherlands as well? So they would reveal certain things perhaps to me as I was a fellow outsider. But then at the same time, as most of them were refugees, as I said, they were very conscious that there was a privileged migrant who could choose where to go, who could plan where to go. So they would say, you know, for you, when you came to Austria, you studied Austria, you know, you studied German, you packed your bag, you came here, whereas us, we just had to flee. So in the conversation, that was useful to talk about language. I don't know how it, it's difficult. How it has to, I don't know if I use it with gender in the same way. These interviews were all in English, right? Were you and thinking it, of something, of the gendering language? No, I, I was just thinking about the debate in Austria about mm. the bin, bin and e, e and yeah. all that stuff, but it doesn't play any role in the English, or doesn't it? It doesn't. Uh, does it? No, no, no. Actually, what is interesting is that, and I noticed that now that I'm back in the UK again, it has become increasingly common. No, not even for, it's not even any radical <sighs> statements. People, if they don't know the gender of someone, they would just refer to the person as they. So this can be in situations where they don't want to guess what your gender is or you have not made a statement about it yourself, what your preferred pronoun is. But it can also be if we're talking about people have applied for a job or something and we don't know, of course, what gender the candidates are. We would just say they, even though we're talking about one person, we would use okay. the plural they. So they have sent in their CV instead of he or she has sent in the CV. They don't really use he or she anymore. They just use they to be inclusive of anybody who might define as he, she or something else. Yeah, It's, it's very interesting because it's really a big debate in, in Austria because sometimes they just uh, try to rückgängig machen. Some of the, they already had the bin and e in some uh, state yeah. texts or something else and now they say, no, they have to do it backwards. It's no, I know. I mean, there is... strange. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of comparative. If you now go to feminist and gender conferences, there are often panels about this what we can call like a backlash against uh, feminism and in different places it's called differently right um, gender is all of a sudden presented as if it is an ideology and this happens in france it has happened you know in austria and germany in eastern european countries and so what is interesting at these conferences is that people really sit together and try to think about what are the differences and similarities between what's happening in these countries and can we learn something from that. And the interesting thing is that the UK and the Netherlands didn't have that so clearly yet, which are two countries that, that I know really well. But recently we had in the UK a similar case that fits that thing where there were parents who had a child who was in a school where there was one transgender child. And then they said, we don't bring our child to school anymore. We just let the child be at home because we don't want our child to be confused by, let's say, a boy in a dress or something. We don't have anything against it. We just don't want to confuse our yeah. child. And so that is very similar to some of the discussions in other countries. So it seems to travel as a phenomenon, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, let's go now to your current research, which is more male-dominated, I think. It's on Afghans and Iraqis who have worked for Western military forces or development organizations, roughly said. Mm -hmm. What is that about? Yes, so yeah, that seems a bit a strange move, maybe, <laughs> because I was interested in people doing good. And some people would say that uh, being in the army would not necessarily be about doing good things. But I did discover that actually most soldiers also think of themselves as doing good things. So the reason I got interested in this also has to do with Vienna in a way, because, um, so as I told you, the, the role of the mediator, the bridge, the translator is always a difficult one, where 
people can have some power, but also at the same time, the role is very precarious because they might need you one day, they don't need you the other day. Uh, you might be seen as not loyal to your group. And so there is a f concept that is called the traitor translator. And the most ultimate, I think, traitor translators of our times nowadays are people who in the most recent, you know, big international interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan who decided to work for development organizations, but especially those who decided to work as interpreters for the Western militaries, right, for Western armies. So these were mostly young men who started working not only as interpreters, but also security guards or cooks for, let's say, the German army or the British army, the US army, any other of the NATO countries. And afterwards, they were, I mean, not even afterwards, Afghanistan, of course, is still ongoing, They're seen as, as uh, traitors, basically, to their country, and they often become refugees as a result of that. So what I'm doing is that I interview the people who find themselves in that situation, and I look at what claims to rights and protection they make. But I also look at the people who support them, basically. The people who already left the army or are now working there. The people who have already left. I mean, I will soon go to France, where there's an organization that also is in contact with people who are still in Kabul have interpreted and worked for the French army and we're hoping to set up a Skype call with them so then I might also have access to them because I was interested not only in the people themselves as the traitor translators but as I'm interested in the people who try to do good I was also interested in the people who support them so these are often military veterans who never really thought a lot about migrant issues perhaps but who themselves worked together with people in Afghanistan and then became aware of the fact that these guys were in danger and started being interested. So these might be people who set up NGOs as a result of that, or it might be lawyers who are really active and mobilized in favor of this particular group. Yeah. And as this is ongoing research, are there already any findings or something you maybe were surprised? Or mm -hmm. Okay, so one thing that really surprised me was that there's quite a lot of media attention to the topic, but there was not really research. It was very surprising in the first place. Because these are quite compelling stories, you know, it's like this guy worked for us and now all of a sudden he finds himself without any protection, with the Taliban behind him. The newspapers like to run those kind of stories. Yeah. And also, interestingly, quite conservative, also sometimes right-wing newspapers like the Daily Mail in the UK are interested in those stories. So the, the Daily Mail has a long-standing campaign, Betrayal of the Brave. Because, of course, it fits also with the patriotic notion of the country and fighting for the country. So even though they would be against any other Afghan asylum seekers, they would really be in favor of this particular group. That was surprising in a way. But, I mean, surprising when you work on migration to find that there are some migrants who are seen as the good migrants yeah. in that particular way. Um, but also what was surprising was that you have a lot of national initiatives to support people. But what I didn't know was that they were not aware of each other. So I started doing the interviews in the US and in the UK and in Germany. And I had just found these different initiatives from looking online and reading a lot. And then I realized that they didn't know about each other. So one of the things I then managed to do was to bring them in contact with each other. Because it's very hard work they do and they often feel alone. And also the people who they support are often people who have worked for different countries. So it might be that you're a man from Afghanistan and you have worked for six months for the British, then for six months to the Germ for the Germans and then five months for UNICEF. And then you find that the Taliban is threatening you and you uh, try to flee. And you can only find somebody who can bring you to Norway. So you end up in Norway. 
And there in Norway, there is a lawyer who is willing to really help you and profile your case. Now, this person in Norway was then not connected at all to people in the UK and Germany, even though that would have been helpful because the person had worked for the UK and for the German army. So that was very nice of this research so far in the sense that I feel I can immediately, let's say, give back something of the research by bringing people in contact. Maybe the other surprise is really, it is, um, it's not so easy for me, right? I'm, I mean, you sit opposite to me. So you see, I, I'm 34, but I look quite young. <laughs> you will see, or I guess I look a bit young. Um, I'm a woman and I enter a very masculine world yep. partly. And I enter a world that I don't know very well, namely a military world. So, for example, in, in Washington, D.C., I had an um, interview with someone who set up an organization to support this group of people. And he said, the only quiet place I know in Washington downtown is the Army-Navy Club. So that's then a club, you know, for veterans, basically, where there are men in uniform and I enter that place and I needed to dress up in a particular way in order to be let in. So it's just a world that I don't know very well. And it's interesting for me also that that I think I can still establish good relationships with the people that I interview. Yeah, I, I think that's always surprising that you can find similarities or that you can find sim common sympathy that they are willing to talk to you. The podcast before that will be one with a political scientist from the Philippines who is mm. working, she's working there on researching on, on gender issues and women in the Philippinian army. Oh, wow. Because uh -huh. it's interesting and reminded me on that. I want to switch the topic a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong and you don't know that or maybe you don't have an opinion. But as I read that you're working now in the research areas, citizenship and governance, mm -hmm. When I hear that, I must think immediately um, about the right to vote in Austria also in uh -huh. other countries because just on the 10th of October there will be the Pass Egal mm. I don't know if you know the initiative. Yeah, I've, I've, I've of course voted pass. myself in that yeah. Pass Egal well, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. right. So what's your opinion on that? Who should have the right to vote in a country? The people who live there or who have the right passport? Yeah, so I would go much more towards residency. I mean, I, I would first say maybe I'm not the total expert on this. I mean, the total expert on that would be someone like Gerd Falgaris, who's here at the no, University of Vienna. No, it's just a personal yeah. opinion. I think, you know, I, I've of course voted myself in Vienna. I think what is very interesting about Vienna and something that not everybody knows is that we know that for national elections, citizenship is normally the basis by which voting rights are distributed. But with the city, normally as a European Union citizen, you should be allowed to vote in another city. So if somebody from Vienna moves to Amsterdam, they can vote in the Amsterdam elections. And that's very clear why, because they use the cycle lane, they bring their kids to school, all of those things that have a very direct, they go to the park, all these things that have a very direct impact on their life are decided on that city level. But... And if I would have moved to Graz, if I would have moved to Linz, if I would have moved to a village in Niederösterreich, I would have been able to vote here as well. But because Vienna is not just a city, but it's also a Bundesland, it's also mm -hmm. a county, a, a regional district, EU citizens are even excluded from the city vote. And that seems very strange because we made in the European Union some kind of mutual agreement that if you would move to Amsterdam you could vote so I would expect that if I move from Amsterdam to Vienna I could vote as well that doesn't mean that I think that only EU citizens should be allowed to vote but I think that that already is very inconsistent um, very strange and very frustrating that we couldn't separate the city election 
from this regional election. And that's also why I stood in that queue for a long time <laughs> to, to cast my vote on that day, even though, of course, as you know, it's, it's counted, but it doesn't count, right? Yeah. Mm. Symbolic. Um, exactly. And I mean, we know indeed that we have neighborhoods uh, in Vienna where so many people cannot vote. And it's so important, I think. I mean, voting is a, it's not just an important right, but it's really about also feeling that you belong to a country, that your opinion counts, yeah. Just a few sentences on your uh, university you're working on now, mm -hmm. because it's a special one. It's the Open University in the UK, which mm -hmm. is, um, I think, completely long-distance learning university. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How is that organized and how is your work there? Is it different to other universities? Yeah, so it is very different as an institution for two reasons. One, like you said, it's totally distance learning, but also the reason for that was that It was set up now 49 years ago, so next year is the 50th birthday, basically anniversary. It was set up to make education accessible for more people. So you can imagine, for example, people in prison, mm -hmm. you know, could not go to a university, but they could still be smart and wanting to educate themselves. And they could take a course with the Open University. So I was attracted to the Open University because it's not just about prison population, but, you know, it can be also people with a disability or it can be people who are mature students It really started as, as an initiative to bring higher education, not just lower education, mm -hmm. to a broader group of people. How did it work 50 years ago? Via postal mail? Yeah, no, interestingly, also together with the BBC, for example. So you have lectures that are... And we still have a very close collaboration with the BBC mm -hmm. broadcasting. So you often see... Still, my colleagues advise our kind of consultants on BBC documentaries about certain topics. So like... The House of Lords, which is the upper chamber of the parliament, or LGBTQ rights, like lesbian, gay, uh, transgender, queer rights or something. And then you have the documentary. And then at the end of the documentary, it says, want to learn more? Come to the Open University, you know. Um, but it used to be really that, yeah, you had lectures, like f famous people. Stuart Hall is a very famous kind of social theorist. He would give lectures on the BBC and people would kind of sit in front of the television, you know, and, and watch that lecture. Yeah, material would be sent to your home. Of course, now everything is online, so that's very yeah. different. And now, of course, also more universities can offer something like that. It is very different. I mean, so first I have a research position, so I'm not teaching. You're so absolutely no teaching. No, but other people are teaching. It's okay. just that my personal position is a yeah, research yeah, position there. Sure. And that's why I don't know the real ins and outs of the teaching and how it works. Because, of course, we do do teaching. Uh, but they talk about, like, they produce a course, basically, and it takes, like, two years. Uh, they write the handbooks. They really think about how to make it interactive online. And, of course, the course is also not changing every week. You know, when you're teaching here at the University of Vienna and you read something interesting interesting in the newspaper that you want to bring to class you can do that straight away and you can't do that in that way and i think it still influences me and that's also something i miss because we don't have students walking around we have phd students walking around on the campus but our bachelor and master students they maybe come for summer school or we have still some days day schools where they come But it's not as dynamic, of course, as, as having like a campus. No, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Did you choose it because it's an open university or did you choose it because the research offered there, the position was yours? I chose it because indeed it is kind of famous for its progressive history. And as you said yourself, so I was doing research about migration, including uh, a lot with refugees. 
And then the so-called refugee crisis started. And that also meant that a lot of interest and also a lot of funding all of a sudden went into refugee research. People who had not necessarily studied that before wanted to do that. And so I was keen to have the time to write a book based on this European Union research and also the part from the UID feeds into that before everybody else comes with their re refugee research. So I was interested in a, yeah, in doing really being in a research position. I like the person that I could work with. Citizenship and governance is also interdisciplinary again. So Usually my last question is about the future plans of my guests. Ah. But as this will be the December issue and Christmas will be upcoming, I will ask you for your wishes for the your future in research and what are your wishes for your future work? Right. So you asked me about my wishes for myself. Mm -hmm. I thought Chris Christmas is about the it's wishing about for the I world. Know, but, I know. But you will give it to me and to my listeners. So Okay. <laughs> Because I would have said something about a better and more equal, more tolerant world, of course. My wishes for myself. Such a good question. Oh, this puts me in an existential crisis. No, I don't <laughs> oh, no, know. I don't no, 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 no. Okay, I mean, I think, in a way, I want also wish a continuation. What I do now is I wish, you know, to continue being able to do my own research where I meet interesting people, where I feel that I do research on issues that are relevant and that have a direct impact on people's lives. I wish to be surrounded by inspiring people and to keep in exchange with those people. And I think it becomes quite clear when you have heard my biography that I feel close to Austria and Vienna. I feel close to the Netherlands and to the UK as well. Uh, we know, of course, what the developments are in those countries. So I just hope that it remains possible for us to have international exchange and also for myself to not have to choose for one country and for one language but to be able to be mobile and you might still have to stay somewhere for a longer time. But we talk to each other in Vienna now because I got an invitation to come here again. I, I just wish for it to continue like that, to be in touch with those different communities and different, different scientific practices. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, thank you for being here at the Alumni Audio Lab and to, for talking with me about your issues and your research. And I wish you good luck for the future and for all your wishes. <laughs> thanks. And thanks <laughs> thank for you your questions. <laughs> Alumni Audio Lab. <laughs>